0: Hi, welcome again to the Influencers with Chris Jones, and yes, that's still me. So, last month's podcast was with a fabulous influencer in the LGBTQ plus community, and thank you, or real thank you, for all the amazing positivity and the feedback about the the, the brave and the honest interview with Rob, or Dr Bev. Now this month, something completely different – we delve into the world of forensics. And my special guest and friend, Abby Carter. Abby, like all of my guests, I suppose, is a real force of nature. She's a forensic archaeologist who set up her own company, Forensic Resources, when she was just 24, yes, 24. Now, American hit shows like CSI and programmes like Silent Witness have brought the world of forensics into our living rooms, of course. But Abby Carter, whose business is the real-life world of scientific crime-solving, is the real deal. She is highly respected, not only in the world of forensics and business and entrepreneurship, but as a supporter, a fundraiser, a tireless advocate for the victims of the Bosnian-Serbian war. And this year, 2020, just happens to mark the 25 years since the genocide in Srebrenica where 8372 men and boys were killed abby's work to commemorate and to raise money and awareness and her campaign to never let anyone forget that terrible atrocity is well quite frankly incredible and it's been my honor to help abby in my own small way over the years believe me this lady is a real Genuine influencer. So enjoy the October episode of the Influences with me, Chris Jones.
1: Hello. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm I, I'm okay. Sorry, I'm in a bit of a technical issue here and I'm trying to get the dog to stay off the le- off the sofa get down yes it's been a while
1: I know I know I was just messaging you because I was just thinking if this is not great sound quality on my computer microphone I can always do it on my phone
0: if it's no oh, no this is fine this is fine listen yeah. no this is fine you you join me at the right time look I'm having my um immu- shot. immunity shot which tastes disgusting. I
1: did actually get vaguely tempted to have a go at one of those when I saw you having them. Mm. It's um considering your facial expression, maybe I won't. It's, uh, it's not
0: quite a it's an acquired taste, let's put it that way. <laughs> Podcast, Abby is called The Influencers. So Abby Carter um, is obviously an influencer in more ways than one, Abby. So we'll talk about later on. Tell me what a forensic archaeologist is, and what okay. a forensic archaeologist does.
1: Okay. So we basically use the technique, the techniques of an archaeologist, so the, the excavation techniques, um, but we apply it to a legal forensic. Situation. So we basically excavate homicides and genocides using archaeological techniques of excavation and all the post-excavation techniques that we would use, just as any normal archaeologist would do. So it's the intricate excavation of a body, be it a single body or a uh, multiple bodies, if it's a genocide. Right. And the artifacts that you would have in a normal archaeological dig would be evidence. our digs so we we just do it we use exactly the same same techniques we just apply it to a murder scene or a genocide scene
0: It's, Um, it's what i call a proper job abby this is a proper job isn't it
1: well it is um i mean thankfully in the uk we don't have multiple or or that many single buried murder murders anyway so actually this sort of role is very much an international job if you were to be practicing it because it's the search, locating, and excavating of homicides and genocide. It is. It is not a job that you can do um, frequently in the UK, which is good in terms of our criminal justice. And uh, yeah,
0: and well, we, we'll talk later about, about the sort of the, the the difference, if you like, between the states and the UK. But was this something you always wanted to do? Tell me about the young Abbey.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Well, I always wanted to do criminology of some sort or be working in the criminal justice system and i wasn't particularly academic at school in terms of theory i didn't enjoy the theory side of things i much preferred the practical side of science or whatever it was i was studying so i knew that i wanted to go into some form of criminal investigation but i didn't want to be doing textbook work i didn't want to be in a in an office and and i wanted to be doing something physical so i opted to do a degree in scientific archaeology trying to focus as much as i could on the science rather than the history side of things so don't for god's sake ask me anything about bronze age or iron age um <laughs> and um, and then i did my master's in forensic archaeology specifically looking at the the forensic side of
0: it. Let's go back then again. This is um, on no account saying anything about it, any anything about the education, but you actually went to boarding school in where? Uh,
1: in Northamptonshire, at Aundall.
0: Was that a good thing for a young RB Carter to be doing, going to boarding school? Is that something you, 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 you glad you did?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my parents uh, lived abroad. My father lived in the Middle East for his work and um, my brothers were both at the same boarding school as well. I am a home girl, so I I struggled with it a little bit in terms of missing my parents a lot. But when I, because I'm the youngest, it meant that when I went to boarding school, it meant that my mum could move out to the Middle East with my dad so that they were happier together because my mum was living in the UK until I was old enough to go to a boarding school, or, or if I chose not to, you know, they would have had to have dealt with that later on. But that was the plan. And so, um, yeah, I had my brothers there. I loved it once I was there. I struggled with it at the beginning and then, you know, at the beginning of a term, but I absolutely loved it when I was there. And I think those are my... My best years, actually.
0: And so would you say um, that kind of education and that bringing has stood you in good stead? Because you're obviously, you know, by now uh, uh, a strong, independent woman. And I've just heard the story about when you were 11 or 12, you went on the plane by yourself. Was it the, for the first time ever to meet, to um, see your parents in the Middle East?
1: I don't know if it was just necessarily the education. I think it was the people in that education and the people that raised me. So I personally think I'm the person that I am because of my parents and that I happen to have a couple of really strong mentors at school. So my housemaster was really, really important in my upbringing. But I think if I'd met him in any school, he would have been that wonderful person. He just It just so happened that I happened to warm to those sort of people that really supported me. I don't think that that needed to be in a a private boarding school education. Don't get me wrong, there were a lot of benefits and I benefited hugely from it, but I don't think that I'm the person I am solely based on that education. It's the people that I met and the people that I warmed to and I took guidance from.
0: So forensic archaeology came about when you went to see an exhibition, is that right? Tell us about that. Some exhibition, was that in Cardiff?
1: Um, which exhibition? <laughs> <laughs> a,
0: a facial reconstruction exhibition at a museum ah, that led to the Masters in Forensic Archaeology. I'm reading this, Abby, from, from somewhere I found on Google. Oh, right, okay. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs>
1: so um, it was a, an exhibition by Richard Neave, who's, well, the famous and long-standing expert in facial reconstruction. And it was looking at Alexander the Great, that's who it was. It was oh, Alexander right. the Great's um, skeleton and skull And he wanted to do a facial reconstruction on that, using all the plasticine and the clay to reconstruct his face because he also had a lot of pathology on his skull. So he wanted to see the scars, et cetera. And he recreated his face from um, using all the muscle ligaments and things like that, all the different measurements. And that's where I really... Well, you literally see a dead person come back to life. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And that's what I, I sort of wanted to working, not in facial reconstruction, I just wanted to work with the deceased and, and somehow not bring them back to life, I realise that's not possible, but in some way help the people that were left behind, the loved ones left behind, to bring them some solace or bring them some sort of comfort. And whilst Richard Neve did that with facial reconstruction, um, albeit in a scientific way, I wanted to work in human rights based on having seen that, and that's where my love for human rights and oh, okay, just helping people right. and, yeah, yeah.
0: And obviously, that, that's a big part of this podcast because obviously, you know, for in, in my book, that's that's what you're influencing at the moment, obviously. But you you start you then began a company uh, at 24, I'll oh, be goodness sake. How many, 24. how many, I mean, how many young people at 24 started on company?
1: Yeah, I um, I finished my masters. So I came back to Cardiff. I worked at the university a little bit, doing some research for them in their phone labs, in the osteoarchaeology lab. And um, I was looking for jobs and I found a job, but I knew it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. But I took the job because I knew I needed to get a little bit further along in forensics. And then lots of things sort of happened in that year. I didn't plan to set up the company. It was a little bit of a push from the company in a way because... um, I needed to leave that company and it wasn't looking great and um my uh, there were two directors of the company one was a science director and one was a business director and i'd been really nurtured by the business director to try and come out of the lab and work in the business side of it and i said oh i don't want to do that i'm not a businesswoman. i'm a i'm a scientist i'm a lab person i'm, I'm more happy in a lab and he said no no i can really see that you can help us in the office and i need you to help do both i want you to work in both sides and I wasn't keen on it. Um, but I thought, I've got, to make a, I've got to make a show of it. If I'm going to be working for this small company, I need to, you know, put my hand where they're telling me I need to put it. So I, I started working in the office and I became absolutely obsessed with the business side of um, the company. Wouldn't let anyone else touch the computers. I knew all my databases. I knew what was going on. And then a few things happened in that year. The company basically wasn't going to be viable. And so uh, a lot of people left all at the same time. And my business director said to me, look, you've got a few options. You've got four options, basically. And I said, oh, that's that's a good start. One is that you stay here and you're unhappy. I was like, oh, that's not a great start to that option. Second one is that you retrain in something else. I said, I don't want to do that because I've spent four years getting to where I am now. Uh, He said, you could move away. I said, I don't want to do that either because I don't have a base in the UK. My parents were still abroad and I wanted to stay in Cardiff. And they said, right, okay, the fourth option. You can tell I'm quite pig-headed as well. So the fourth (laughs) option, he said, was... um, you, know, you set up your own business, you know what you're doing. And I said, well, that's absolutely ridiculous as well. So I was furious at the end oh of this God. conversation. Yeah. I had four options, and all of them I thought was rubbish. <laughs> so um, I spoke to my parents that evening, and my both of my parents just said, we've been thinking the same thing for ages. You should be setting up your own company. And I was furious with them then. I was like, God, why doesn't anyone come up with a good idea? <laughs> um, and then um, my father is a very, very savvy and successful businessman in the Middle East, and he said, look, I'll mentor you. So um, Dad said, look, I'll I'll mentor you. And my old business director also said he'd do the same. So I had two really, really amazing influencers there who helped me when I set up the business. And, yeah, it was technically 23 when I was set up.
0: And the business is called...
1: Forensic Resources Limited. Now,
0: I I like the strap line fidelity, reliability, loyalty. Explain that.
1: It is exactly what we stand for. It is, um, you know, we are very loyal to our clients who are mainly solicitors and um, barristers in the criminal world or insurance, uh, loss adjusters looking at insurance fraud or private individuals as well. Uh, yeah, we pride ourselves on being very loyal and we get an awful lot of repeat clients back based on that stance. And fidelity and reliability, I mean, that's what I think everyone should be able to aspire to in a business. I mean, you know, everyone is out there to make money, but we have to make sure our clients are happy. And And I want repeat clients. So if yeah. I can try and keep everyone happy using those, those three bases, then um, that was the plan. Right. And it's worked for over 12 years now. So,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you touched on it earlier on about the kinds of work uh, a forensic archaeologist does. But but tell us, is that a day-to-day schedule? Is that, a, I mean, every day is probably different in, in the kind of work you do. It's a broad spectrum of the, of the work you do, is it?
1: Yeah. So the company, Forensic Resources, is not specifically forensic archaeology. So we have 43 different disciplines that we provide, one of which is forensic archaeology, which I do. But if I was to be doing forensic archaeology every day, uh, I wouldn't be in the UK, as I mentioned, because we don't have that no, many buried no. murders in the UK. So if I, was to ta- if I was to wanting to be working as a practitioner every day, I would need to be in, now I would say, Syria or um, the Middle East, you know, working on mass graves. But I chose to stay in the UK because I wanted to settle a little bit for a while, because after university... I just needed to have a bit of time in one country and not be traveling around. I didn't really want to start my work in another country again. So I wanted to settle a little bit here. So the 43 disciplines range from your typical criminal things like DNA, fingerprint, computer forensics, et cetera, uh, all the way through to things like psychiatric assessments for fitness to plead cases, or for private individuals coming to us for drink drive cases. So we have lots of different consultants who work on all the different cases. And as I say, if I was to work elsewhere, it would have to be abroad. So I'm just the director of the company, and as and when a case comes in for forensic archaeology, which they do every so often, I'll do a paper-based report as opposed to physical. Probably, mm-hmm. um, that's when I would use the forensic archaeology. And I'm presuming
0: in all this kind of work, confidentiality is a big part of the business. Yeah, I know you you yeah. were you know you you were involved in the role. Raul it Raul killings and yeah, that kind of right. thing. But I, I'm presuming the confidentiality is, is a big part of your work, which is why people come back to you as. Yeah.
1: That case was actually in the media. We worked on the media case for it. So once it's in the media, you can talk about it. So yeah, we worked for Sky News on that case to look at the ballistics and the audio of whether or not he shot himself, or if it was to do with the taser gun that was used by the police prior to him killing himself. We know that he killed himself, but it was whether or not um it had anything to do with the taser gun. So that's what we worked on for Sky News.
0: Did you grow up watching things like Silent Witness then and CSI? And let's talk about that. Let's talk about the difference between the UK and uh, the USC.
1: At least every week, we have to tell some of our clients that we're not CSI, <laughs> and even they, as intellectual lawyers, are shocked when we say that because there's so much stuff on the on the TV now yeah. that really makes our job very difficult. Because people think, oh, you can you know you can get audio analysis from a mu- you know from somebody wearing a covert. Um, microphone, you can get that absolutely crystal clear and then you can transcribe it and you can hear what all these people are saying or you can get that, you know, there's all these different things that CSI will make out that forensics can do and unfortunately I have to break people's hearts a lot by saying no, 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 we can't do that for your case or when I go into schools and universities to give inspirational yeah. speeches yeah. you know, the first thing I have to say to those students is don't think it's as cool as you see on TV because the real world is not like that you see all of their faces, just going, oh, <laughs> and then you can see them all sort of thinking, right. Well, must find my UCAS form and change my plans for university. as <laughs> cool.
0: Um, are there any bits at all that are realistic with regards to CSI, and your Silent Witness, all these things you see on TV?
1: Um, I mean, yes. they they have an awful, large, awfully large budget for research. So I wouldn't say that necessarily their forensic techniques, etc., have. A, I have no problem with those. Primarily, in things like Silent Witness, they're very, very good, you know, and, and, and certain programmes, but my big issue that I have with it, which really does affect young people nowadays, is that on these programmes, Silent Witness included, you'll have one person who seems to be an expert in about 10 different disciplines you know, they're a pathologist one day, they're a ballistics expert the next day. Oh, and that, actually they've got a load of knowledge on toxicology. Oh, actually, yeah, they can do the fingerprints as well. Oh, and my. I'm sat there pulling my hair out and I, I scream at the television. I can't watch it with other people <laughs> because the whole point of an expert is you're an expert in on one field one, thing, and one yeah. field only. Um, and so that, I think, is a really bad um, image to portray to young people because they are influenced by those programmes and that's why we have a huge influx of people wanting to be forensic scientists. But, you know, a forensic scientist, the terminology for that is, assumes also the same sort of career, that you are a forensic scientist, which means that you, are a, you have a knowledge of lots of different things. But actually, if you're to do a degree in forensic science, which a lot of people do when they see these programmes, you'll be a jack of all trades, master of none, because you will have learned a little bit about all of those different sure. forensic science disciplines. And what I try and explain to people is to do it the way I did it, which is do a degree in something specialised, i.e. archaeology or biology or chemistry, whatever it is, and then you apply it to forensics later on down the line.
0: I've been called that several times, Abby, jack-of-all-trade master and in me. <laughs> um, I mean, so in, in which case, you are influencing uh, young people with regards to, to, to that kind of thing, to that kind of world. Hopefully, they, they would want to go into that kind of world. It's up to you then, as, as someone who's been in this business, to sort of... Not prick their bubble, as it were, but but, um, just to set them straight. Let's talk about um, influencing it in other ways. Now then, I've known you basically for a few years, but I've I've known you primarily because of your connection with the the, the Bosnian-Serbian war. and We're both um, role models within Wales, that we go to talk to um, schools and colleges about our different roles. But listen, my role is nothing compared to what you uh, were involved with, with the Bosnian-Serbian war and the genocide. So let's... Sort of remind some of our listeners what that was about, when it was, uh, what actually happened.
1: So it was the war of 1992 to 1995, where the former Yugoslavia broke down into its um, various countries, Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia, mm. they all um, created their own independence over time, over sort of the 1990, 1992 time. And also, then the final one to do the, to declare independence was Bosnia. That was where the big issue came in with the Serbians basically losing their control, and it was run at the time by um, Milosevic, and he wanted to create a Greater Serbia and not lose the power that he was losing when former Yugoslavia started to break down. After the this is all after the death of Joseph Tito. So. Um, he saw this breakdown of the former Yugoslavia. He didn't like the lack of um, power and wanted to create now a greater Serbia. And so the referendum for independence for Bosnia was in March, 1992. And in April, 1992, um, the siege of Sarajevo began, which was, I think the longest siege of a, of a or longest, longest military siege of a city in history. It was just shy of four years. And uh, the plan really was to besiege Sarajevo in the plot, really, to divert people's and the media's eyes away from the rest of Bosnia. You know, uh, Serbia wanted it to look like a domestic civil war in Sarajevo. Just one city was under siege, but actually it diverted people away from looking at the rest of Bosnia, where concentration camps were being set up, um, ethnic cleansing across Bosnia to try and get rid of the Bosniak Muslim um, population and keep the catholic Croats and the um christian serbs and that was the um the plan the concentration camps and rape camps and labor camps were all set up around um bosnia the largest one being a a masker uh which you all have seen the the time magazine picture of the man stood in front of Uh, the gate
0: yeah i know yeah that was in
1: 1992 when that photo was taken so that was the beginning of the war and Srebrenica, which is the area that I specialize in, was in 1995, which is the end of the war. So it could have been prevented in 1992 when the world was told all about what was happening there. And it was made very apparent that this wasn't a civil war. This was a mass extermination of one religion and ethnicity in, in so, Bosnia.
0: So, so why wasn't it stopped then? Well, that is, what are the reasons of people not getting involved? Did people just ignore it with regards to what happened in the Second World War? Surely they could see that this was happening again to a certain extent. So why didn't people get involved? Why was it allowed to carry on for so long?
1: There was a massive international failure from all areas, including UK, were one of the worst actually for politically ignoring what was happening. There were lots of peace talks, there was lots of chats about it, um, but nothing really materialised from it. Uh, same with the US, uh, well, all over the world. It was an international total failure that did not prevent what was going on in Bosnia. The UN were in Bosnia. Um, but they were a peacekeeping movement, you know, they weren't allowed to fight off the Serbs. And I'm not the right person, if I'm honest, to discuss that because I get a bit too emotional about it and upset about it. So, and also I think that if I, when I give speeches, um, and recently we've been doing a lot of them online, and you get, so when you're doing it online, you get your delegates are far, re- you know, far more reaching. So we've had people from America, we've had all sorts of different people joining in on some of these. Um, online speeches that we've done or all different experts or whoever might be speaking, but I've had a number of people when they put the questions in the chat bar, loads of people apologizing and we'll, I'll be talking on behalf of, you know, forensics in Bosnia, but I'll have um, some survivors on the same panel with me. And these people are contacting us to say, I'm sorry that I didn't as a civilian individual person do more to help when we saw it all on the news. So you know, it's it's an international political failure, and also, a lot of people find it heart-wrenching now to think that they didn't do enough. I mean, there were there were huge um, protests and stuff in London, all sorts, to try and tell the government to help more, but for various reasons that um, I won't go into, there was there was a massive. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bosnia, and that's uh, why we work so hard to remind people about it now so it's only 25 years ago on European soil so but how
0: did you actually get involved in this whole process then as a forensic archaeologist how on earth did that happen
1: so my lecturer at Bournemouth when I was my master's was one of the archaeologists who worked on the mass graves I think in 1998 he went out there a couple of years after the war and he worked for the international commission of missing persons the ICMP I'd worked over there for a number of years and then came back to the university to lecture and that's when I was studying with him. And I think once you've got to a certain part of your degree, um, if you've got a certain grade and you're in the top percentile of people, you were allowed to do a a practical-based dissertation. And as I said earlier, I'm not a theory person. I wanted to do practical. So um, I went to my tutor and he was my tutor and I said, look, what can I do? And he said, look, if you're interested, you can work on some of the evidence from this this, uh, genocide called Srebrenica. And there was a number of mass graves. And he had the foresight when he was excavating to look at some of the evidence and think this is this is really important evidence that could be used in the tribunals, you know, for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So he retained evidence, Um, not not the actual physical evidence, obviously, that was um, held um, appropriately. But um, he said, you can work on that evidence if you like. And so he, I said, yeah, absolutely, it sounds great. And uh, he provided evidence in the form of Seiko automatic watches. And they were very popular in Bosnia in the 90s because they are similar to a a kinetic watch in that when you move your wrist or the movement of your body as you're moving, uh, keeps the, the watch ticking. And then, when you take it off and you leave it uh, to one side, it will take a finite amount of hours to run down and stop ticking. So, we could use those on the dead bodies that were, they were found on a number of dead bodies in the mass graves. So we can use them to find a literal time since death estimation. Oh God, and, and that's what one of our main roles is as a phantom archaeologist, is to, uh, as a is to find out, you know, estimated time since death. And it's very rare that anyone would get the opportunity to have the time, date and day of death. There was a really critical date in which we really needed to identify whether General Mladic, who was one of the generals under Milosevic, uh, whether he was in the vicinity at the time, because um, that's what we needed to prove. We had the date and the day of when we thought he'd created these mass graves, but we didn't have the evidence to prove it. And that's what we really needed these watches to do. So... I um, wrote off to Seiko and they provided me, I think, about 17 watches they sent me, all for free. And they just gave me a huge amount of support. They were brilliant. Wow. Then I went to the Royal Observatory to learn how a watch worked and you know, and clocks and all sorts of things. Sure. And, uh, and then I just proceeded to do loads of experiments on different methods of burial or what would make the watch start ticking. And there was a big issue of primary and secondary mass graves because the Serbs started to realise that the international community were onto them and they realized that we were uh, watching them via aerial photography, the Americans were, and they could see these mass graves being dug and bodies being put into them. So um, Maladich decided that he would ex- we just take in front loader lorries and pull up the dead bodies and discard them then into secondary and tertiary mass graves to try and hide those Mm. and to make them look like war graves almost from the Civil War. Um, So we've got bodies that are actually, I think one body that we identified was over seven different locations, different parts of the body because it had been moved. And so we needed these watches to also provide evidence of whether or not they would show that a body had been stagnant effectively and sat in a mass grave for X number of um, hours or days, and then had been picked up and moved again elsewhere. That was absolutely fundamental to um, the International Criminal Tribunal, and that's what I worked on.
0: I can see you getting a little bit upset now with regards to talking about this. So this obviously was a a, a harrowing experience at the time, and I presume still is, yes?
1: It is because I talk about it most days, because I lecture in it and I work for a charity for it. So I sort of... um, I talk about it so much that every time, and you'll be the same when you're doing your things, when you talk about something, every time you discuss it, you, you come up with a new um, link to something or, or another reason why it upsets you and that's why you are so passionate about the cause. And that's what I find. Every time I talk to somebody about it, I get more and more het up, which inspires me then to keep educating people because that's the problem we've got. The story of Srebrenica is an amazing story. As as sad as it is, it teaches people so much about ethnicity, about religion, about about communities and... um, Social cohesion as well, because Bosnia was the most cohesive country ever. You know, Muslims, Jews, Christians all lived together in harmony. You know, if you go to Sarajevo, the, the mosque is right next to the synagogue, which is right next to the church. There was no segregation. You would never know if you walk down the street in Sarajevo now who was a Muslim and who wasn't. There's nothing to identify them visually from, a, a, you know, a Catholic Croat uh, or a Serbian uh, Christian. And that's what I find really harrowing, that when all of this happened and the Serbs turned on the Bosniaks, they had to identify people by basically saying, either I know you and I know therefore that you're a Muslim, so I'm going to kill you, or what's your surname? Tell me your surname and I will then determine that you're a Muslim and then I will kill you. That's how cold-blooded it was.
0: Um, It it really is like going back to... Again, I want to compare, but it really is like going back to the days of, of, of the, the Nazis and the Jews and the Second World War, isn't it? It's, it's, it's of the yeah. same milk, isn't it, really?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, just, it was just getting rid of, you know, one religion. And that's right. what I just cannot accept. And I cannot let people not understand that that was a cohesive, wonderful society, just as our modern, cohesive society in the UK and Wales is nice and we think quite cushy, but what happens when overnight our civil society can break down just like it did there? Yeah. And that's, you know, there's so many lessons to be learned from Srebrenica and the Bosnian War that people don't realize. Um, and so it's great as an educational tool. It's great for race, religion and equality. It's great for learning about the science because actually our forensic archaeology really made its name in Bosnia because it was the first large international scale genocide where forensic archaeologists were used you know in a paramount you know their evidence was paramount for the investigations i mean there was a whole host of other evidence as well but actually the forensic archaeology and the excavation of those graves and piecing together those primary secondary tertiary graves and looking at the geography of all of it as well that can only be done by a forensic archaeologist so the scientific learning you know as cold as that sounds is huge as well, and it's a it's um it's the exemplar um yeah. study really for forensic archaeology. So I've got so many different responsibilities to educate people in so many different things that that's why I get heads up every time I talk about it because I suddenly think oh that's a good thing oh I should be talking to that person oh I need to yeah, you know, yeah. know tell people about that and it, there's only so much you can do unfortunately.
0: Well, it's, it's a big part of of your life even now, and I've been you know very honoured and proud to have helped you in, in my own little way um, with, uh, oh God, you remember that walk we did? We did uh, let's, let's, let's quickly explain that then. So um, Srebrenica 8372 was a, a campaign, a project you had to raise awareness, to raise funds, and as you say, um, this year, 2020, is 25 years since the actual yeah. genocide. So um, tell me um, what Srebrenica, well, how did that come about, 8372? Explain the, 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 the reason behind that.
1: So 8372 is the famous number associated with Srebrenica. So 8372 men and boys were killed in five days, um, which is what constituted the largest genocide on European soil since World War II. So I devised challenge 8372, and I used each of those numbers, because I thought as soon as I say that, someone's gonna say to me, what does 8372 mean? So that was the initial stance of me being able to hook that person in Mm -hmm. to talk to them for hours about the genocide. And so I used each number. So I had eight months to do three challenges with seven motivators, who were the people that I knew that I was doing it for, uh, so the survivors, and two goals. The two goals were to raise money and to raise awareness. And the three challenges were to do a half marathon, uh, to walk 53 miles from Brecon to Cardiff along the Taft Trail, which was partly depicting the death march that the men had to do from Srebrenica to the next safe haven Um, because Srebrenica was technically a UN safe haven, which got overrun by the Serbs. And at that point they realized they needed to start walking to safety. So that's during that time is when all those eight thousand three hundred and seventy-two men and boys were killed. So the death march is very, very famous. And and that's what I wanted the, the 53 mile walk because it was 70 miles in Boltonia. I wanted this to be part of that walk. And then the final challenge was to run the marathon, it, and they were all done in Wales. And you kindly helped with the walk. And <laughs> I think I've still got blisters, if I'm honest. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a 20, we had 24 hours, didn't we, to yeah. do it, and we did it in 19. We so I, we must have sprinted for some of it.
0: Well, we we certainly talked a lot along the way. I know I remember that. Uh, there were three of us, weren't there? But I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was great, and it's a great part of the world to to walk in anyway. 24 hours or not. What is there a is a specific Welsh connection to all this?
1: The Welsh connection, the actual charity, Remembering Trebonica, is based in Birmingham. But they have uh, various different regional boards and country boards. And I joined the country board of Wales. And in 2018, they asked me to be the chair of the Welsh board. So there is my link to Wales in that I wanted the Challenge 8372 to all be in Wales because I'm representing Wales and I'm Welsh. And um, and so I did the Cardiff half marathon, the Brecon Taff um, Trail with you, and then the Newport Marathon, which I will never do again.
0: <laughs> Wasn't that bad? That
1: part? <laughs> was worse than the walk oh, really? by a long way. But we did raise over ten thousand pounds, which was amazing oh, for that. Oh, so I just, I just and that charity it. money has gone. Sorry, that that fundraising money has gone back to the charity to set up as part part way to set up the. Srebrenica Memorial Learning Centre which will be based in England uh,
0: And do you get any, any help, any support uh, from organisations, from governments for example?
1: Uh, in Wales no we don't, the, the charity is part funded by a uh, department of the UK government so they get a small amount of, well I don't know actually how much funding but they get some funding from uh, the government and we're hugely appreciative of that uh, and they're very very supportive of us in Wales, we get absolutely no funding whatsoever. So everything that my board does is all voluntary and everything that we do is bed, borrowed and stealed. Yeah, we do an awful lot in Wales, but everything is is voluntary with no funding.
0: This year, as I said earlier on, it's 25 years since the, the genocide and uh, you had all kinds of plans, didn't you really, uh, to, to, to mark that anniversary. But because of what's happened with COVID and everything, um, things were sort of shelved a little bit. But you have... Managed to do something. I mean, tell us about this um, this video on the choir. I know you're a singer, Abby, and I've heard you sing, by the way. Tell us about that.
1: So, you know, yes, you're, you're quite right. We, we had a huge event planned in the Senate with the First Minister speaking. And we had Bosnian survivors coming over. And um, we had it all, all planned. And I've never been as organised. And then when this all happened in March... Senate, you know, quite rightly contacted us to say that it's not going to happen. You know, what are our alternatives? I said, well, I didn't really have a backup plan. I had a for that. <laughs> um, and one evening I was... At the, the, sorry, the Sarajevo National Theatre often send over a couple of musicians from Bosnia to perform at our memorial events. And I know one of them very well, Elvis Solak, who's also a survivor of the, of the siege of Sarajevo. And one evening we were on Zoom, like we are now, and we were having a guitar lesson because he's an exceptional guitarist and I um, was learning the guitar. So we were just pottering around on the guitar and then we were having a drink afterwards, chatting as friends. And he was talking about a song that he had written years ago for the charity and it's called White Flower. And he said, what do you think? Do you think there'd ever be a time when we could perform for Bosnia and the uk to bring us together we talked about this a number of times over the years about doing a big concert in london and to be a big fundraiser event and we would do this that and the other and i said well i don't know what we can do now with covid happening and you know i don't even know if we'll have a memorial etc and he said i we, we're just sort of pottering about some ideas and i said wouldn't it be amazing if we could still do it online though and, and as you know with, with covid we'd seen the advent of all of these um, videos of people, you know, collages of people singing and whatnot. I said, Do you ever think we could do that? And we both started just sort of hypothetically speaking. And then he said, Look, let me send you the white flower so you can see the music tomorrow. So he sent it to me and I started playing it on the piano and I thought, Oh, yeah, this could be uh, something that we could do. So I contacted my choir and uh, Cardiff Argonne Singers and uh, I contacted our director, David Leggett, and I said, What do you think? Is there any chance that we could get our choir and the Sarajevo National Opera? to sing remotely, and then we paste it all together, this one song, which is basically the anthem of the, of the charity. What do you think? And in the end, he, ag- he agreed immediately, he just said, yes, I didn't, and I only joined the choir in the January, and I'm asking him to do this in the March, so he hates me now. He agreed to do it, so he arranged that piece for choir and orchestra, and in the end, we had 114 singers, and 15 musicians, half from the Sarajevo National Philharmonic and half from um, Wales, um, the musicians. And then our two choirs were from the Sarajevo National Theatre and the Cardiff Ardwin singers. And we got everyone to record their individual pieces on video and audio. And then we had TV Hayat, which is a very famous TV station in, in Bosnia, do it all for free. They stitched everything together cool. um, and they did all the audio and the video. And now we have a panoramic uh, HD version yeah. of White Flower sung I, in Bosnian and in English. I, I've
0: seen it. It's, it it's, it's an amazing feat in the first place how the hell it happened. But wh- where where do people see that? Where How can people see that? Is it on YouTube or something? Or?
1: It's on YouTube, yeah. If you put in White Flower, if you put White Flower Srebrenica or White Flower Ardwin, it'll mm. come up pretty okay. quick. Um, or you can go on to our um, Remember Shrevanitsa Wales Facebook, and it's, it's on there as well, okay. or on the Ardwin Singers. It, it was amazing, because basically I wanted that to be our memorial piece, and it was our showstopper, really, for Memorial Day, because we did everything online. And I just wanted it to be a, a song of remembrance from Wales to Bosnia. It was nothing to do with the main charity. They loved it so much that they asked it to be part of their national commemoration. So they actually included it in their one but it was, it was specifically just a Wales dedication to Bosnia to let them know that we weren't forgetting them during lockdown because you know it would, that was such an easy excuse for people to do nothing this yeah. year because yeah. you know we can't do the, the the live events so therefore we won't bother and I, I couldn't bear the idea that Bosnia or those survivors or the victims were forgotten just because something else was taking over our news at the time.
0: I, I'm, I'm getting the impression this is is massive part of your life, isn't it, really? Uh, and you're obviously going to keep on going with this kind of thing. This is this is something that you will do until the day you die, I presume, yes?
1: I'll always be part of remembering Shabinitsa in some form. Um, I've given... Like I said, I've been chair since 2018 now, and um, I know that there are other things I want to be doing. So I want to be looking at larger scale human rights as well so I want to I've got a a few ideas in the pipeline as to what I might do uh, in terms of larger scale and I don't mean larger genocide I just mean looking broader across many different human rights issues and equality issues Uh, but no you're right the nothing will take me away from remembering Shabnits because that was I know it sounds weird but it's it's my first genocide that I worked on and that's (laughs) your baby in a way and yeah, I, I know it's as yeah. i've said before the, the lessons that you learn from this one are so far reaching and you know that the more you can shove into one of those sessions with young people the more you can inspire them to to just broaden their horizons a little bit more um so there'll never be a time where i don't give a speech where i don't bring up remembrance of trapeze somehow <laughs>
0: influencing uh people of a certain age young people but can I ask you um do you regard yourself as um a role model specifically for for girls for young women for um I- in your business and in general
1: I would never call myself a role model or an influence or anything like that but if I I get pushed into I get requested to do certain things which I'm very proud to do so doing the role model work but I wouldn't ever say or, or now I'm doing mentoring as well which I love doing but I wouldn't I wouldn't say i I just specifically look out for young girls in that respect when I'm teach when I'm doing the lectures or when i'm I'm doing any events I probably tell my story a little bit like you just said so I'm trying to educate people to just think you can do absolutely anything you want to do it regardless of your sex age or whatever it is so I don't I don't have any particular obsession with trying to get young women into doing things but my big thing is to try and educate young people to think broader, um, think more broadly in terms of don't worry if you're not academically strong when you're younger, because I certainly wasn't. I was very, very low down on the a- academic pecking order. and But it didn't stop me from doing what I've done now. Uh, and and also getting rid of this imposter syndrome that everyone has. More more so women. I know that they have a bad... bad um, case of imposter syndrome but that's what I'm trying to stop young people doing is just thinking oh I have to do a vocational apprenticeship or I have to do vocational this that and the other I have to go down this route to make money or to do this but I'm trying to push people into either stem subjects or to entrepreneurial ideas or setting up their own businesses or collaborations with people because I think that's a big part of our future or just realizing what your passion is And then how you apply it in different areas. I think that's really important. I think a lot of people, young people at school, either have no career advice whatsoever, or it's very, very basic and just like you can do medicine, you can do this, you can do that, you know, which is what I got at school. I had rubbish careers advice at school. And it was only because I happened to know what I really wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't know how I was necessarily going to get there, but I did at least have a plan of what I wanted. And Lots of people don't have that.
0: Wales specifically is quite a good place to be an entrepreneur. Now, as we know, there's a lot of uh, campaigns and projects and help out there for young people who want to be entrepreneurs within Wales. Are you still learning Welsh? And are you still clay pigeon shooting?
1: Technically, I suppose I'm always learning Welsh. I wish, I wish, I wish I could ever get fluent I should have spent that 24 hours with you only speaking Welsh when we were walking. Ah, uh,
0: yeah, we didn't think of that, did we? No. I know.
1: I, I love the Welsh language and I will continue to, to aspire to learn it properly. Um, my Welsh is very pigeon and I swear if you ask me anything in Welsh now, I will cut us <laughs> off right now. Do not test me, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in terms of, yes, yes, bridge and shooting, it does shock people when I do that, yeah. Is, I haven't for a while. Um, is that a release?
0: Think. Is that something you just, just helps you relax and switch off or, or get rid of any pent-up frustrations and aggressions, Abby? I have
1: done it for a long time, well before um the company or anything like that it's just something i really enjoy it's just it's not that easy in wales now actually because loads of shooting grounds have closed down not because of covid just over the years it's it's shut it's closed down now that's something if i was to tell people i'm I'm nine times out of ten the only female at any shooting ground and it's absolutely hysterical when um i will get to a line and there'll be four or five men in that line and then me, and they're all looking around thinking she's not <laughs> mad, she's not a really? like, what on earth is she doing there? And every single man, I can guarantee, will come up and give me their two pence worth of how I should shoot a gun. Okay. And they haven't even watched me do it yet. I'm not saying that I'm an it or anything, but I know what I'm doing with it. And so when we then go along the line and we start shooting, and they're all looking over going, oh, oh, she's not just here for a, <laughs> a quick so but yeah,
0: that's the worst place for. Okay. um oh, wow! Well, well, I think I've opened up a nerve there, Abby. <laughs> hey, um, where where do you see yourself going then? Where do you see the company going in five, ten years? I mean, who knows? Is there is there room to expand? Where where would you like to be? Where would you like to see yourself?
1: The plan with the company, we, we're already at the stage we wanted to be, and we don't necessarily want to expand more. Uh, Obviously, we want to get more cases, which which may need expansion of the staff in that respect. But there's there's big changes happening in our world at the moment in terms of legal aid, because a, a large proportion of our work is legal aid. And that's inherently been bad, and it's gotten worse over the years. But there's been a big change recently in the last few months. So at the moment, I'm massively campaigning for a big change to our criminal justice system based on the funding that we get. Um, So that's my sort of focus at the moment with our company. Yeah, our plan is to go more into the investigation side of fraud as well, because that is getting more and more prevalent. As much as we like to see crime statistics go down, it's never going to go away. So that will keep the company running um, and steadily. But we want to be moving into the larger uh, insurance fraud cases that we're doing. We already do a large number of them. But I think that will probably be the way that the company goes. Um, And then in terms of myself, it'll be, um, like I said earlier, a bit more on the human rights further afield. Whether that's a public appointment, whether that's sitting on various different boards, et cetera, I don't know exactly yet. There's a few things in the pipeline, um, but forensics will never go away. Srebrenica, for me, will never go away. Um, Mentoring, educating. A A lot of people say to me, why... You know, how do you sleep at night? Uh, not in a critical way, but they say, you know, when you deal with all of this genocide, you deal with crime every day, how can you switch off? And, it's, and I will honestly say it's working with those young people that you and I work with. You'll know the feeling of coming away from one of those events and you're absolutely buzzing because when you've done a panel event, for instance, and you've got those young people in front of you coming up with these great business plans or they've conquered their nerves of not wanting to speak in public or not wanting to do a pitch... And you said that you're not that important or you you don't think your role is that important, but you're the one that brings them out of their shell and keeps them feeling happy at those big events. I'm sat normally as a judge or a dragon trying to be the nice dragon at those events. And I, I walk away from those thinking, do you know what, if that's our future, those young people are our future, then we've got a pretty good future ahead of us because the stuff that comes out of those role model events that we do, it's absolutely essential that we nurture those young people because they're the ones that are going to be running our country in the years to come. And they're the ones that need to be educated about civil societies breaking down through racism or hatred yeah. and the consequences of hatred, which is why I feel that responsibility to A, educate their academic side through role model um, and mentoring, educate their mental side of things, you know, their mental health, by encouraging them to be confident and happy to pitch to people or happy to mess up and get things wrong and then thirdly educate them on the wider picture of you know being good people and being happy and being safe and creating civil and happy society so this is why work constantly because I'm constantly thinking about
0: stuff. And this and, is why you're on this blinking podcast, Abby Carter, because <laughs> you are an influencer at the end of the day. Right, Joachim Abi Abby Carter. Um, tell us then, uh, how do people get hold of yourself, uh, your company? There's a website, you're on social media, yes? Yeah,
1: if it's to do with a charity, then... Well, the, the website for the, the company is ForensicResources.co.uk. The charity is um, srebrenica.org.uk dot uh, org uk, and no, that's not an easy thing to spell. But as soon as you start putting S R E B, yes, it in, comes up yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I'm on social media. Uh, the charity is Remember Srebrenica Wales. So that's the ha- uh, that's the ta- um, the handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And then you can get me on all of those things. Okay, great.